Tonight on this recorded hour of Extension 720, it's our great pleasure to welcome to the program once again uh, President Jimmy Carter. You come at an auspicious time. I was thinking about this just uh, earlier today. This is almost 20 years to the day of your leaving the presidency. That's true, and also uh, 24 years to the day of my going into the White House. That's true. Yeah. It's been a most productive 20 years, I would say. Well, it's been a really surprisingly gratifying period. We've uh, organized a Carter Center. We have a wide range of subjects, peace, human rights, uh, holding elections, uh, uh, primarily health care in 65 nations in the world now. Uh, 35 of those countries are in Africa. They're the poorest people on earth. And we're often there, so uh, this was a surprising development of opportunities for us that uh, apparently no one else is willing or able to perform. Yeah. You know, one of the favorite programs, one of my favorite programs over the years, uh, and we've replayed it a number of times, is my discussion with you about the book in which you recount your first election in Georgia and the way in which the local boys tried to steal it from you. <laughs> it's a great story, and it's a, it's a fine book. And now you've hearkened still further back to your childhood. Yes, I have. In a memoir titled An Hour Before Daylight. That book by Jimmy Carter, subtitled Memories of a Rural Boyhood, and just published by Houghton Mifflin. It was indeed extremely rural, more so than I would have realized. There, you had nothing by way of the... You had very little of the ordinary accommodations that the outer world provides. By the outer world, I think you're right, but... Uh... My contemporaries in the rural South lived pretty much like I did. I was not a yeah. part of a unique family. We didn't have any electricity. We didn't have any running water in our house. We lived in an isolated community. I didn't have any white neighbors. All my neighbors were black. All my playmates were black. We worked from literally before daybreak in the morning until sundown. Uh, did our chores around the barn uh, before dark and then went to bed very shortly after the sun was gone. And this was my life. And I think that uh, it was emphasized in my memory by the fact that it was during the Great Depression when poverty was prevalent. Uh, it's amazing to realize that uh, for an average sharecropper family, their annual per capita income was only $75. And to live on an entire year for 75 bucks uh, is almost inconceivable today, certainly in America. And uh, another surprising thing was that although the uh, society, the, the nation was segregated uh, to comply with the Supreme Court ruling that applied to all 48 states at that time, uh, we lived in the most complete intimacy between black and white people in that local farm community. But with barriers that were mutually recognized and were virtually never transgressed. They were recognized, never questioned, never transgressed. That's true. There were no black activists, there were no white liberals until 20 years later yeah. who ever challenged the Supreme Court ruling that separate but equal was an acceptable law to prevail all over the country. The most eminent person by your reckoning and by your memory in the community was uh, the Methodist Episcopal Bishop, William Decker Johnson. Yes. You've got a picture of him in the book. As a matter of fact, that picture is at the base of the Eiffel Tower. And uh, William Decker Johnson was uh, a bishop of five Midwestern states in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME Church. And his home base was in Archery, Georgia. He mm -hmm. published a magazine. He had a little insurance company. He was, in, at least in our opinion, extremely wealthy. Every year he had a new 
automobile, a great big black Packard or Cadillac. He never drove himself. He always had a chauffeur. And he would come home a few times a year. And when he did come home, it was the preeminent news story for the entire region. Uh, William Decker Johnson was my uh, epitome of a successful person, uh, well-educated, financially successful, influential, not only in our yep. community, but around the world. But when he came to visit with your father, he would not enter, no black would have presumed to enter the front door uh, and was supposed to go around the back door. He yeah. wouldn't do that either, of course. That's right. Rather, he would park out front. Well, what he would do is to send his uh, chauffeur car down to our house in advance to make, make sure that my father was at home. And then the chauffeur would go back and get the bishop mm -hmm. and come back to the front uh, yard, blow the horn. My father would go out in the yard and stand alongside the car. Or if the conversation was an extended one, they would get under a, 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 a magnolia tree and talk and laugh and, and so forth about the different uh, responsibilities of life. And then uh, Bishop Johnson would depart. So he you know, acknowledged and complied with the peculiar mores of a racially segregated community, but without showing any uh, semblance of inferiority yeah. in any way. You say that many of the older folks who were around when you were a lad um, spoke very bitterly about Reconstruction, which either they remembered or they were quoting yes. their parents. Uh, but in all the reference to the war between the states, as they called it, of course, they never made any mention of slavery never. as an issue. That's true. In fact, my grandfather, my mother's father, was only 11 years old when the Reconstruction days ended, when the so-called carpetbaggers from mm -hmm. up north and the scalawags who joined them in the south, uh, who had excluded uh, Civil War veterans from voting and from holding public office, departed. So he had a vivid memory of those days when, in his opinion, the white people in the south lived under subjugation following the war. And so there was... Um, a permeating consciousness of the legacy of the war between the states. And um, there was really no uh, opportunity for them to acknowledge that uh, slavery had been even a factor in the origin of the war. It was uh, northern uh, oppression or the deprivation of southern southerners' rights to have uh, an econ economy that was based on manufacturing and trade with, with uh, foreign countries, those kinds of things. It was a, a very encapsulated or enclosed environment uh, where the uh, beliefs were very, uh, were very narrowly defined. Yet, though one gets the impression, particularly in the first chapters of your book, that you were, as a family, deep in the rural South and not really in contact with the rest of the country in any significant way, except for the radio, which you were played sometimes, That's right. but not very much because you had to run it on battery power. There was no electricity coming into the house. Yet, I discover that your mother and father were at Ebbets Field, I presume, on the day that Jackie Robinson first appeared for the Brooklyn Dodgers. That, that astonished me. Oh, does it? Well, my father was the best baseball pitcher in Sumter County. Yeah. He pitched for the American Legion team, and he also caught on the days when he couldn't pitch. Uh, he was also an outstanding tennis player and so forth. But base, baseball was uh, the driving uh, interest in my family, not only my father but his brother as well. So Daddy took only one vacation a year, he, he and Mother. And it was during the uh, lay-by time when we didn't have to cultivate our crops anymore, and it was before harvest season. And, and he and his brother and the two wives would uh, leave in my uncle's car, and they would drive to a different place in the United States every year. 
that had a Major League Baseball team, sometimes to Chicago, sometimes to St. Louis, sometimes to Cleveland, sometimes to Boston, or Philadelphia, New York, and so forth. And they, of course, the teams then played a lot longer period at home. If they, once they got home, they might play two weeks without going back on the road. So they would pick out a time when there would be a couple of doubleheaders scheduled mm-hmm. and go and stay in that community, and that was the main purpose of their visit. And then when the teen, when the, that, uh, that period was over, they would drive back home. You never went along with them? No, they never took me along. This yeah. was kind of their time <laughs> fear to get away from the kids and so forth. What, what was the farthest you adventured beyond Plains by the time you were, say, 15? Atlanta. To Atlanta. I went to Atlanta a couple of times. Atlanta had a baseball team called the Crackers, mm-hmm. and we would go up and see the Atlanta Crackers play on occasion. Uh, that was a double-A or triple-A ball, I've forgotten which. And uh, right across the road, Ponce de Leon Avenue, from the Crackers uh, baseball field was Sears Roebuck headquarters for seven southeastern states. And so we lived with Sears Roebuck. In fact, our house is a Sears Roebuck house. And um, so we could go into this magical place and, and go to the counter and order things out of the catalog and wait about a half an hour. And lo and behold, they would deliver the order to the counter, and we could put it in our car and drive home with it. So mm-hmm. the combination was to go to Sears Roebuck and at the same time go across the street and see the Atlanta Crackers play baseball. You say that, uh, I mentioned to you before we uh, uh, turned on the microphones that um, I've met all of your siblings. Uh, sadly, all of them are gone now, aren't yes, they? Yes, they are. But they were all on this program uh, at different times. Um, and you say that your relations with your your two sisters and your brother were uh, not contested and not difficult, but they were rather sparse. That They weren't all that important in your early life. Well, they were. Billy didn't come along until I was yeah. about ready to leave home, so I really had no chance to know Billy except as a tiny baby. My older sister, Gloria, two years younger than I was, was very competitive with me. I was mm-hmm. a tiny child. I, I grew up slowly. I had a very severe illness uh, when I was a child and almost died, and it stunted my growth, my mama said. It was colitis. And so Gloria was kind of uh, ostensibly dominant and, and and a little bit superior to me, physically speaking. She wound up in later age be, as a motorcyclist, among she, other things. Absolutely, an avid motorcyclist. Yeah. And uh, Ruth was a beloved child. Uh, she was five years younger than I, and, and my real sweetheart, yeah. and my father's sweetheart, too. Gloria was combative, even against my father, but Ruth was a kind of person you could really love. And so I didn't have much to do with them. They were... Uh, they they occupied a, a, a female's uh, environment inside the house, you know, with dolls and, and sewing and so forth. And I was always, whenever possible, outdoors with my daddy or with Jack Clark, the mm-hmm. black man who ran our farm. And um, so we didn't have come into contact with each other very much. Of course, later I know that you were very close to Ruth. and uh, Very she, close to Ruth. She Ruth was very important a, in your life. She became an international in- evangelist. I know. And was famous. She was author of five books. And uh, when I was running for president, at first people knew Ruth Carter Stapleton a lot better than they knew Jimmy Carter. Supposedly, you had some sort of spiritual crisis or uncertainty, and there was a famous walk in the woods with with your <laughs> sister, which somehow got you well, out of this. Came along the after I, after the time of the book, but it was when I, I had come back from from the Navy, had run for the state senate successfully. Yeah. And then ran for governor, and my opponent in the race was Lester Maddox, my primary opponent, who was, uh, his whole fame was uh, as a racist. Axe handle <clears throat> Lester. Axe handle, well, actually a pick handle, and he was pick standing handle. outside yeah. his, his restaurant where he served fried chicken mostly, 
And any black person who approached the restaurant, he would try to attack them with a pick handle. Yeah. And that was the source of his political strength in Georgia. And he defeated me. And was He didn't actually win the election, but uh, the legislature put him in office. And uh, I was completely disillusioned that uh, the people of Georgia and, and God would permit this racist to be elected when I thought I could do a much better job as, uh, as governor. So I, I basically had a, a falling away from my religious faith. And Ruth, who lived in Fayetteville, North Carolina at the time, heard about it. She came down home, and we walked out by ourselves, sat under a big pine tree, and she quoted some uh, verses from the book of James that when we do have a setback in our life, that with courage and patience and faith, we can always, she said, turn that setback into an asset. Mm. And I won't tell you the exact words I used on the radio, but I said it's just a bunch of baloney. Mm -hmm. That's not possible. My political life is over. Well, four years later, I was elected governor, and then I went on to be president, so she was right. And how many years, it was only four years after that that you ran for president, wasn't it? That's right. Yes, I I ran for governor and was elected and served four years, and before I was out of the office as governor, I was running for president. Yeah. She was right. She was right, absolutely. (laughs) A, A life viewed contemplatively uh, when you've lived a fair amount of it uh, inevitably raises questions. What would have happened if I had done the other thing? That is, there are forks in many forks in the road. Absolutely. Uh, and all the all the choices taken led you to being who you are and what you are right now. Mm-hmm. What were some of the crucial forks which if you had taken the other branch would have led you in a very different direction, do you think? Well, of course, my first uh, desire in life outside the farm was to be a midshipman at the U.S. Naval Academy. I because, can quote you to yourself. You say, and uh, I'm reading from your book, from the time I was five years old, I would always say that someday I would go to Annapolis and would become a naval officer that's from it. the age of five. Yes. No one in my immediate family in 250 years in this country had ever finished high school. Yeah. My father went to the 10th grade. And during the Depression years, uh, it was considered inconceivable for one of us to go off to college because it was so distant and expensive. The only two free universities in the country then were West Point and Annapolis. And so my daddy had an ambition for me to go into the military service. I had a favorite uncle, Uncle Tom Gordy, who served in the Navy. And because of his influence, I decided to go to Annapolis. The lightweight champion of the Pacific Pacific Fleet, Fleet, Absolutely, yes, he was. And he was a hero of mine in many ways. (laughs) So I went to Annapolis and uh, served in the Navy for 12 years and all. Mm-hmm. And then I never intended to get out of the Navy. But I came home when my father was on his deathbed. Admiral Rickover gave me a couple of weeks off. And as I sat by my father's bedside, whom I hadn't really seen for 12 years, except just very brief uh, vacation times, and there was a, a, an incredible stream of people who came to our house, black and white, and I, Daddy was too sick to talk to anyone, but I would go outside, and they would tell me this, these extraordinary stories of how my father's life had beneficially affected theirs and uh, the sacrifices he had made and the secrecy with which his uh, benevolence was exerted. And I began to see, to my amazement, my personal amazement, that I might find a life outside the Navy. And uh, on the way back to Schenectady in New York, I decided that I would resign. And when I, I was working for Rickov, I had the best job in the Navy. And when Developing nuclear submarines. Yeah, I was, there were two submarines being built at that time, and I was in charge of one of them. That yeah. was how high I had gotten in the Navy. When I told my wife that I was contemplating this resignation, she was furious and, and, and literally 
Rosen hardly spoke to me for two years. It was a very serious uh, schism mm. between us. So we moved back to Plains and uh, and never had any real second thoughts, but we had become a little more liberal on the race issue than most of the people in Plains. So we faced uh, boycotts against our business and so forth, but finally uh, prevailed. And uh, that was a turning point in my life, just uh, casting my lot in a little town of 600 people on the land that we had owned for 160 years and uh, with the neighbors that I had known since birth. I do remember a story <clears throat> you tell in another one of your books about uh, the attempt by local businessmen to get you to join their branch of the White Citizens Council, was yes. it called? White Citizens Council. And you refused, yes. despite considerable pressure from them. That's true. I Well, I, I had seen in the Navy the impact of Harry Truman's uh, executive order that racial discrimination was over. And although in the civilian population, as far back as 1948, uh, racial discrimination and the Supreme Court's ruling of separate but equal still prevailed, in the Navy it didn't. We really eliminated, particularly in submarines. So I, I was affected by that. And when I went home, I was determined that I would try to do what I could to, um, to bring about a change in the racial relationships. Uh, because of that, my customers, who were really loyal to my father's memory more than to me, decided that uh, since the Ku Klux Klan at that time was in disrepute, and still is, thank goodness, that the White Citizens Council, which was uh, dedicated ostensibly to a peaceful resolution or se segregation, would prevail. Everybody in the county, in the town of Plains, all the white men joined the White Citizens Council except me. And finally, about 25 of my customers, who were my daddy's friends, came and talked to me. And they said it was going to ruin my business, that I was really being overly obstinate or obdurate. And they had decided to pay my dues in the White Citizens Council, which was just $5 a year. And I told them that I would take $5 out of my pocketbook and go back and flush it down the toilet. But I was not going to join the White Citizens Council. So they left. And subsequently, there was a, a pretty all-pervasive boycott against my business. But uh, times prevailed, and, uh, and our family was indeed respected since we'd been there so long. And uh, over a period of two or three more years, uh, the, the, the uh, people in the community accepted the Supreme Court ruling that the segregation, legal separation was over. And when you first ran for the uh, state legislature, it was really on the understanding that that was the cause you represented, and that was the position you yes, would bring to I, uh, I became to Atlanta. A, a member of a Sumter County School Board, and then because I was so eager, <laughs> I became the chairman of it as a mm -hmm. very young man. And when the 1962 election came along, there was a, a ruling by the Supreme Court to uh, it was called one man one vote where the county unit system, so-called, was eliminated, and each person's vote was supposed to count equally. Then uh, our main potential Democratic candidate for governor, uh, uh, who was, was a very relatively uh, moderate man, Ernest Vandiver, his campaign slogan, he would hold up one finger and said, no, not one, which meant not one black child in a white school. And in, as an idealistic young non-politician, basically, uh, I wanted to 
go into politics for the first time, and I ran for the Georgia State Senate in order to save the public school system. And uh, the election was stolen from me. And I really decided that I would give my life before I would back down. So I appealed in every possible way. And eventually, after a long and torturous uh, period, which is described in a book called Turning Point, uh, I was seated in the Georgia State Senate. But in the little election county where my problem arose, uh, one man controlled the whole county. I remember, boss, what's his, what was his name? Yeah, that's, yeah one, one, one boss named Joe Hurst. Joe Hurst. And Joe and Hurst he sat there watching people vote. and uh, He made everybody vote in his presence Yeah. so he could see how they voted. And, right. and he had a big uh, empty uh, pasteboard whiskey box with a five-inch hole cut in the top, and if somebody voted the way he didn't like, he would reach in the box and pull out the ballot and examine it. And if it was somebody that was on welfare, his wife was a welfare director, he would just tear, tear the vote up. We saw him, yeah. but he was so proud and, and arrogant and self-confident that he didn't uh, mind us watching him. How long did he live on after that? Time? He did he lived on see, five did, or six years. And uh, he didn't live to see you president? No, he didn't. Uh, he was in the state legislature. I was running for the state senate. His yeah. wife was a welfare director. He was a county Democratic chairman, and he was a state employee. Uh, after my election was over, Joe Hurst was actually arrested and tried and found guilty of uh, illegal moonshine operation and put mm -hmm. in a federal penitentiary. And um, and so we, when I got to the Senate, we we tried to change and did change the election laws of Georgia to prohibit any convicted felon of serving in office, which was a new yeah. development. And also there was a, a very intense debate on an amendment put forward by uh, a man named Bobby Rowan from Enigma, Georgia, was the name of the town, that anyone in Georgia in a uh, general election or primary election could not vote who had been dead more than three years. And there was a kind of a debate about that issue. Well, you know, if somebody dies, uh, their wife and their children can certainly ascertain how they would have voted for two or three years at least. <laughs> so uh, eventually, though, we had a good election law passed in Georgia, and mm -hmm. it's one of the best in the nation now. Now, one of the, um, this book is utterly readable. I think it will be a book that will last as a significant contribution to American literature. I rather thought, as I was reading it, of the memoirs of Ulysses Grant. The subject is quite different. Grant is writing about the Civil War, yes. but that was how he came to prominence. Yes. Uh, you didn't have a Civil War to fight, but this is equally moving, and it's obviously written in the voice of the author. You didn't have any ghostwriter. No, I wrote every word of myself. All my uh, books. I never met a ghostwriter. Of course. An Hour Before Daylight by Jimmy Carter. Memories of a Rural Boyhood, published by Houghton Mifflin. Some commercials coming. And after that, the two central figures who emerge in this book, there are many fascinating characters, are, of course, your mother and your father. Yes, that's and true. And your relationship to them. And they're both very interesting people. So I propose we talk about them after these words. We return to conversation with President Jimmy Carter. I have committed a boo-boo, as they call them, and must instantly correct it. I gave the wrong name of your publisher. The publisher is Simon and Schuster. It was last night's guest whose book was <laughs> published by Houghton Mifflin. Oh, um, those are good people at Houghton Mifflin, but Simon and, and Schuster they, is... And Houghton Mifflin have been my publishers in the past as well. Right. Um, but Simon and Schuster are, of course, a major firm. Though I guess they're now owned by the Germans, aren't they? A lot of them are. Bertelsmann, yeah. yes. An Hour Before Daylight uh, by Jimmy Carter. And um, in it, we encounter, of course, from the very beginning, but then in a few separate chapters, your mother and your father. Um, 
your mother is more immediately uh, lovable. Yes. But your father, as you were saying earlier, was a man of tremendous moral commitment, though he did it with a sort of a, um, a hard shell exterior. He didn't did. He? Well, as was everyone else in the community, he was a, a racial segregationist. Yeah. There was no question about racial segregation as a law of the land, and it permeated everything that, that, we, uh, that we did. Mother, on the other hand, paid no attention to the race distinctions. But she was impervious to any sort of criticism, and I think even to any sort of temptations, because she was a registered nurse. And the medical profession, obviously, was pledged to treat all people without regard to race. And in our local community of archery, mother was not only a nurse, but she was, in effect, the acting doctor. Because most of the folks that lived around us, both black people near us and white people farther away, didn't have money enough to go to a hospital and didn't have any transportation to go to planes. So mother was their, was their doctor, in effect. So when they delivered a child under difficult circumstances or when they had some disease, mother was the one who treated them. And, and because she was in their homes and saw the deprivation of their lives and got to know them all intimately and personally, uh, she just treated everybody the same. And so mother uh, came out of uh, an entire life uh, as uh, known throughout the Plains community as uh, an integrationist or one who advocated the end to racial segregation, but she was never condemned for it because her contemporaries, uh, the women with whom she played poker and so forth, uh, saw her as, well, Lillian's a nurse, and you know she has to act that way. There's one picture of her, in, a few pictures of her in the book. There's one, um, uh, I guess it's sort of a formal portrait. She's really a very delightful-looking young woman. Yes. That, that one photograph that we found just recently is when mother was only 15 years oh, old. That, that young, yeah. And she was so beautiful. She was, really, And yeah, she was a yeah. pretty woman later on. She, yeah. Mother had a goiter, and she was emaciated for a long time. She mm -hmm. was tall and gaunt. And, um, of course, she was the operating room nurse when she was working in the hospital, and the doctors all cared for mama. So one of her favorite doctors was Sam Wise, and he prescribed some salt, for one thing, that she would eat, uh, iodized salt. And he also uh, advocated that to gain weight, mother should drink at least one or two bottles of beer every day. Mm -hmm. So mother was kind of a hero, you know, among, <laughs> among her contemporaries because she had found a doctor that would advocate that uh -huh. she actually took. And she uh, followed that prescription. She did. Loyalty, did she? <laughs> <laughs> and she eventually gained some weight back. Uh -huh. But mother was an extraordinary person who was uh, who lived a memorable life. You t you tell in the book that when you were kids, uh, for entertainment at night, what most pleased you and your sisters, I guess, was to uh, pester your mother to tell you stories about uh, the past. And particularly, yeah. uh, there were stories about the question that recurred again and again was, how did you and, and, and Daddy meet? That's true. And you tell the story about how they did meet. It was on a, a date where they <laughs> accompanied other people. Well, even pre preferential above fairy tales or anything else, we wanted to hear about our family's sure. early life. And Daddy never would talk about his own early life. My uncle Alton, Daddy's brother, told me about that part of the history. But Mother would, uh, with great relish, would tell about uh, how she and Earl first married. She was uh, came from Richland, Georgia, 18 miles away, to be a registered nurse. And she was also, at that time, 22 years old, which was approaching old maidhood. Mm -hmm. And so she was kind of looking around for her husband, and she had a date with a, with a big uh, guy that worked in a sawmill. And Earl Carter, whom Mother had never seen, had a date with, uh, with George's uh, sister. And he went out to Magnolia. I must, I must yeah, correct please. you. 
Yeah. She had seen him once showing off at a swimming pool, or so you say. That's right. She had seen she him. Hadn't met she him, didn't know. I hadn't him. met him. Yeah. Yeah, Daddy was an expert diver, and yeah. he could do a front, front one and a half flip and a, and a full gainer uh -huh. and so forth. And uh, she thought he was a show off. But anyway, he was with her date's sister. And uh, there's a dance floor out there, and all during that evening, uh, my daddy never asked mother to dance with him except one time, and then it was obviously because uh, her date had insisted that daddy invite her. So she was really peeved with my father when the date was over. And so uh, a couple of days later, though, mother and a group of other nurse trainees were on the street, and daddy walked, they walked by daddy and a group of loungers uh, in front of Plains Mercantile Company, went to the drugstore, and daddy walked in and walked up to mother and asked, uh, her if she would mind uh, stepping outside a few moments and she was taken aback but she did so and he asked her if she would like to go riding late that afternoon in his automobile and he had an open top uh, Model T Ford so mother agreed and so daddy drove up and in the meantime the nurses told mother that daddy was a pretty fast operator and she needed to be cautious about Earl Carter because uh, mm -hmm. because he was uh, known to be a man of uh, ladies so anyway, uh, when he picked her up that night, he said, would you like to see our farm? Daddy was trying to show mother uh, how much property the Carters owned. So they, they started out to the farm, and it was an absolute downpour, and they didn't have a top for the car. So Daddy and mother covered up in a you know, kind of a heavy uh, blanket that they carried in the car for that purpose. They drove over to the farm and parked in a, under a shed by the barn that was... Uh, that was open, and they parked on there. And by the, Mama said by the time that evening was over and the rain quit, they had become well acquainted. Well, it all began under a blanket. It all began under a blanket. <laughs> That's true. Bound to work out <laughs> uh, with a, a certain amount of early blooming of affection. That's true. So Daddy yeah. finally asked Mother to marry him, and she um, immediately agreed because she uh, nursing training was so onerous to her and mm -hmm. so highly disciplined. And Daddy said, "No, we can't get married until you get your, until you become a registered nurse." So she went off to uh, a hospital uh, in Atlanta, and uh, Daddy sent her engagement ring up there by another doctor, which really made Mother kind of angry. But when the, as soon as she got through, they were they were married. And during much of during much of your childhood, she's working rather assiduously as a nurse around the community. Yes, she worked uh, a lot of the time in the hospital, 12-hour duty each day for $4. Uh, quite a bit of it was in the operating room as an operating room nurse. This is that the hospital run by that same Dr. Wise. Three of the Dr. Brothers, the Wise Sanitarium, they called it. Oh, yes, a very high-quality mm -hmm. little hospital. And then the, when she was on private duty, the normal thing was for her to work 20 hours a day for the sick person's family, quite mm -hmm. often in the family's home. And she was off four hours a day. And for that, she was supposed to get $6. But it was during the Depression years. There was no money. And uh, people would pay mother quite often with a, 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 a small pig, which we call shoats, or with a few chickens or eggs. Or Lydia and I promised to bring you a dozen eggs uh, every week for two mm -hmm. years or something like that. And so uh, mother uh, cared for people for without any real pay. One thing that really strikes me about this fine book, um, An Hour Before Daylight, is that it's written by a farmer. Yes. Uh, I mean, one gets a real sense of a man of the soil who knows all the implements, who knows the feeling of dust between his, his toes. That's true. Um, I still do. <laughs> you still do. Uh, and you still maintain your place in Thank plains, you. I know. I, and I was wondering, how many American presidents have been working farmers? Uh, very few in modern... Well, 
there have been Tons, large right. landowners like uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Sure. You know, were large landowners. At the beginning, and, yes. And, and they, they worked their farms with slaves, really, but they, they took care of it. I don't know how many have actually, you know, plowed a mule or, or hoed uh, cotton or corn. Harry Truman had a little experience. He wasn't a farm boy, but he did so. he lived in some time. farm he, work, he, I think. Habitat, habitat. Yeah. But, but I, that was my life. And, and I describe it in maybe too much detail in this no, book. No, it's very fascinating material. You know, how you uh, select a mule before yeah. daybreak and take the mule to the field and wait till it gets daylight so you don't plow up your cotton or corn. And the first step that in my maturation... Uh, as a farm boy, was to was to be able permitted to plow a mule. Before that, I had much more onerous jobs of carrying water to other workers in the field, or putting uh, arsenic poison on, on cotton plants, things of that kind. Where I had to, all I had to do was tote a bucket. But uh, Jack Clark finally, uh, with Daddy's permission, uh, taught me how to plow a mule that was highly trained. Her name was Emma, and she could almost plow by herself. And then in that embryonic uh, plowman's state, the only thing I could do was just to break land because if you made a mistake or your plow didn't go straight or went too deep or too shallow, <clears throat> you didn't do any real harm. But it was uh, three or four years later before I was ever trust trusted to actually plow in a field with a uh, growing crop in it because then you have to maintain the edge of the, of the scrape, they call it, that, that kills the weeds within one inch of the of the young peanuts or cotton or corn plant. And if you get one inch out of line, you have plowed up your daddy's crop. So that was a, a, a time of, of enormous self-gratification for me when I actually graduated into a full-fledged uh, plowman. Were you ever tempted to uh, run a farm again? Not to do all the hard physical labor, but... After the presidency, I mean. Yeah, not after the presidency, no. But uh, after the uh, after I came home from the Navy, that was my Well, life. then you did run it. <clears throat> I did run the yeah. farm. And my main source of income was growing extremely high-quality seed peanuts, yeah. peanuts that were grown not to be eaten but to be planted the yeah. next year. We all knew farm. about the peanut warehouse. <clears throat> yes. And uh, when you left the presidency, as I remember it, you had very little real money until you sold... Uh, I was a million dollars in debt to yeah. my amazement. I had left an, a, blind, a blind trustee when I went to the White House, uh, a very thriving warehouse business, farm supply business. <clears throat> but when I was defeated in 1980, a couple of weeks later, my blind trustee came and told me, uh, Mr. President, I hate to tell you, but you have become a million dollars in debt. I thought I was going to have to lose all the land that had been in our family for years. But luckily, Archer Daniel Midland, uh, fine Illinois firm, Decatur, decided that year to go into the peanut business. And my peanut warehouse, <clears throat> which ordinarily would have no real sale value, was bought by them along with six others when Archer Daniel Midland, for the first time, uh, built up a trade so that they now control about one-third of the total nation's peanut market. And so I sold my warehouse almost for enough to pay off my debt. And since then, you've essentially... Uh sustained yourself by your writing, I exactly. imagine. Exactly. Yeah, the vast portion of our income has been from the books I've written. Yeah. All the work you do internationally is not remunerative. No, we work at the Carter Center 51 weeks a year, yeah. and uh, we, we never take any money from the Carter Center. We give the Carter Center some. In fact, I've given the Carter Center one of my books, all the income from it. Mm -hmm. And when I get a, a, especially a, a lucrative uh, speaking engagement, which I do very rarely, 
Uh, most often, the money goes to the Carter Center. Things stand out. Certain details always stand out when you read autobiographies. One that stood out for me is, and this is just a fact of your uh, life, it goes to um, your eighth birthday. Upon your eighth birthday, I learned you were presented, uh, you were given a present by Miss Gussie Abrams, <clears throat> who was the nursing supervisor for your mother and some of the other younger women. And that present was a bound set of uh, Victor, of the works of Victor Hugo. And Guy de Maupassant. And Guy de Maupassant. Yes. It, doesn't, it just says Victor Hugo in the book. And a 20-volume, quote, outline of knowledge. Exactly. I still have every one of those books, the other bound books. And uh, Miss Abrams, who was a head nurse, yeah. It was sanitarium was also my godmother. Uh -huh. And so when I reached the eighth, eight, eight year old, she thought it was time for me to start learning about the outside world. And did that start you on a continuing investment in reading? I know your yes, mother was a great reader. That, my mother was a great reader. In fact, there was a, a permission in our family always until now, as a matter of fact, to read at the table. Uh -huh, yes. So it, it, it's not assumed in my family to be a, a matter of rudeness for someone to be reading a magazine or a book while they eat a meal, except on Sunday noon. We never mm -hmm. read then. Daddy didn't read at the table, but he permitted the rest of us to do so. And then I later had a, a school uh, superintendent who was one of the people that really shaped my life, Miss Julia Coleman. And she uh, inspired us to read constantly and to the maximum level of our in, in capability. So she had a list of more than 100 books, most of them classical books, that she thought was the uh, unachievable goal of any reader. And uh, eventually I read all those 100 books. I was the only one who did. So in all the Plains High School, I was a most a voracious reader. You were the only one in your high school class who went on to college. I, I was the only one who finished college. Uh -huh. A couple of the girls in my class went to a junior college and learned how to be secretaries and so forth. But yes, I was the only one that got to college. You, you note that uh, your graduating class numbered 26 people. That's right. And this is rather a startling statistic, that their death rate was twice as high as they got older as your graduating class from Annapolis. That's true. What well, do you make of that? I've thought about that a good bit uh, since I went to my anniversary at the Naval Academy and, and, and realized the disparity in the statistics. Well, my classmates in Plains came out of a lot of poverty-stricken homes. Uh, the boys uh, went back to hard labor in their lives. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the advantages of uh, constant <clears throat> health care like we'd had in the Navy. A lot of them smoked very heavily. and. Um, and the women had to work, uh, do manual labor as well. And so I think it was a difference in, in basic lifestyle because a, a Naval Academy graduate really is blessed with um, lessons about what's good for your health and also with constant uh, care for your, for your body and for your teeth and to some degree even for mental health. So I think that was the basic difference is just a, the life environment that we experienced after graduation. We forget now that to go back to the 30s and the 40s and even beyond, uh, rural life really exacted a rather heavy toll and indeed involved a, an awful lot of labor and discomfort. Well, there's no doubt about it. And I wrote a good bit about health care <clears throat> in the book because Why Sanitarium, the little hospital in Plains, which had, yeah. had a population of only 500 then, was, a, was an all-pervasive factor in all of our lives, not only because my mother happened to be a nurse, but others uh, too. But... Uh, I described the diseases that afflicted the community then that are totally unknown now. Of course, polio was a great scare. 
if you had pneumonia, you had about 50% chance of, uh, of surviving. If you had double pneumonia in both lungs, you were gone. We had no antibiotics in No, days. typhus right. fever, even a strep throat. My, my favorite aunt mm -hmm. uh, died with just a strep throat, which could be, which be, could be treated overnight even with non-prescription drugs now. But streptococcus infection was, was, was deadly then. And uh, even um, rabies, which we call hydrophobia, was probably the most feared of all because in that uh, rural community there were always uh, rabid dogs, mad dogs we call them, and when a mad dog uh, began frothing at the mouth or biting itself or howling in a strange way, everybody would go in the house except one or two courageous men who would go outside and eventually try to dispatch the dog with their shotguns or rifles. So uh, that uh, constant concern about, uh, about uncontrollable uh, diseases uh, kind of permeated our lives, and, and it was really a subject of, uh, of great conversation around around this filling stations and the stables where loungers existed. So and so yeah. is sick, and this is what's wrong with him or her. And and when anybody got ill seriously, uh, and we thought they might die, and the so-called crisis would approach, uh, there would be. Uh, the road and the sidewalk would be filled with uh, buggies or wagons or cars of well-wishers who would come there, fill up the yard. The women would go inside and do all the household chores, take care of all the needs of the family. And on occasion, the doctor would come out on the porch and say, well, she's no, no change in her status, and we would uh, pray more and more and harder. And then finally, one day, he'd come out and say, she has passed the crisis, she's going to be okay. It'd be a great celebration. Oh, he might come out and give the bad news that uh, this health crisis had failed and she was going to die, in which case we would pray for the well-being of the mm -hmm. family. I, I do want to talk with you some about contemporary affairs and contemporary politics, and we'll do that right after some impending commercials. But before that, I, I wonder if I could get your reflections on this. Um, you've done a memoir of your childhood. It's a very deeply felt one, and it's very detailed. Uh, you have consulted, I'm sure, not only your own memory, but the memories of many others and such documents as you could find and so on. As you re-examined your early years, what has that done to you or for you? What has the writing of this book done uh, in your own relation to yourself, so to speak, or your own relation to life? I think it's let me understand the history of our country, the uh, progress that's been made in this country. In, in a much more personal and all-defining way. Mm -hmm. It's also let me see how the racial relationships have changed from one of, of, of segregation and effective persecution, but intimacy when I was a child, to one of legal rights being equal, at least now, but of uh, surprising separation. And I'm not sure that I'm sure that's progress in 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 the rights of minorities, but um, the understanding of average families who are white and black of each other, I think, is much less now than it was when I grew up. It's also made me try to search my memory and my feelings to see how this life affected me permanently, and what were the lessons that I carried from it, through the Navy, through the governorship, and, and through the White House, and even to today. And I, I, I mentioned in the book, I think, somewhere that, that I, I tried to list, other than my mother and daddy, the five people who affected mm -hmm. my life, life more profoundly. Of those five people who shaped my life, only two of them were white. Yeah. 
And I try to describe those three, among others. Who were they, those three? One was Willis Wright, uh, a superb farmer who graduated from day labor to to, um, sharecropping and then to operating a, a larger farm than his own, all of my daddy's land to the most poignant part of this whole book that made me cry when yeah. I read it, and that was when my daddy decided to, to, to let Willis Wright buy yeah. the heart of our ancient family farm. I could not believe it. He at first had refused that request. Yeah, and, and anybody, no, everybody, everybody was amazed yeah. that my father would actually sell this black man the, the central part of our family farm that had been in our, yeah. in our family since 1904. And at that moment, your mother throws her arms about him, as I remember. Exactly, and all of us cried. Yeah. And then the other one is William Ducker Johnson, whom you've just mm-hmm. mentioned, who, who was my idol as far as uh, success was concerned on a global basis. And, and the other one was Rachel Clark, Jack Clark's wife. Yeah, who that was a black him. couple who also lived on the farm yes. in their own uh, uh, house and with whom you often stayed. Well, that was overnight. Rachel and Jack Clark. Yeah. And when Mother and Daddy were, were off at, at, on vac- vacations for baseball trips, or when mother had all-night duty and daddy was very busy, most often I would stay with Rachel and Jack Clark. I slept on the floor in their house on a pallet they assigned mm-hmm. to me, stuffed with uh, corn shucks. And in the uh, wintertime, Rachel would let me move my, my pallet close to the fireplace to stay warm. And uh, I ate with them. I, I played cards and I played checkers with them. And, and Rachel, on rainy days, uh, when we didn't have any work in the field, would often take me fishing. And we would walk maybe five miles each way to a favorite fishing hole of Rachel's. And on those trips, she would try to educate me about the ways of the world and how people should relate to each other. Just before some impending commercials, I must tell you about a cartoon I saw during uh, the month of December when the country was going through that interminable count in Florida. And we have a few frantic people going through IBM cards or whatever they are, <laughs> and looking at the haggy chads, and one of them looks up totally distraught and says, where is Jimmy Carter when we need him? <laughs> and I want to talk with you, of course, about the election, about the current political situation, uh, about the politics of this moment and of the uh, conceivable and perceivable future. We return to President Jimmy Carter directly after we pause for these words. We return to President Jimmy Carter, An Hour Before Daylight is the fine memoir of his boyhood in rural Georgia that we've been drawing from in our conversation. But now, if you will allow, uh, I do want to come to the present moment. And I mentioned that cartoon. I'm sure you've been told about it in similar cartoons before. That was a a gosh-awful mess. Uh, What are your reflections on it? Well, I couldn't avoid comparing it with foreign Election. Yeah, and that's of course why they said, "Where's Jimmy Carter?" Yeah. Where we needed because you've been well, in there supervising many foreign elections. Yeah, last year we really were responsible for six elections in six different nations. Yeah, three of them in Latin America, two in uh, Africa, and one in, in Asia. And if we were invited, the Carter Center to go into a country, say to the United States, and monitor an election under these legal circumstances, we would refuse because there are certain basic premises that must be fulfilled before we would go in and certify that the election was honest and fair. And the United States doesn't measure up to that standard. One is that there needs to be a central election commission, a blue ribbon commission, that's nonpartisan or bipartisan in nature, trusted by the whole country to make uh, instant decisions if necessary uh, during an election process. And secondly, the voting uh, procedure has to be uniform around the country. 
so that uh, if, if there's a poverty-stricken neighborhood, they have the same voting procedure and the same standards for counting votes that they do in an affluent. And the same uh, method, the same ballot, same, ballot, uh, same yes. mechanism, so to speak. Exactly, yes. There has to be uniformity about it. And, and I was really, uh, and, and the margin of error in the elections that we hold are minuscule as far as the technique of counting ballots. And I was amazed, really, having lived here all my life, uh, to discover that in some low-income areas of Florida, they habitually expected 3% of the uh, ballots to be indecipherable or uncountable, even when people expressed their genuine desire for a candidate. So this means that in an election you know, with 10,000 voters, you have 300 ballots that are not counted. And this obviously doesn't matter if you've got a big margin of victory. But in a close one, it's it's uh, life or death for the candidates. Where's what's the origin of the trouble? Is it just that we haven't spent enough money on uh, the necessary equipment, or is there something else going on? I think we were too self-satisfied, too proud of the fact that we were the beacon light of democracy in the world, yeah. and we kind of neglected our home base. Also, experienced politicians, who's interest, even if they're very honest people, is to be reelected, have become acquainted with the, uh, with the circumstances of an election and have kind of depended on it. Uh, if it means that African Americans or Hispanics or very old people uh, have a lot of their votes cast out, then there are certain candidates who have been elected because of that and they don't much want to change it. Also, there's no doubt that it costs a lot of money. I noticed in the, in the, news, in the Washington Post this morning that uh, that uh, Jeb Bush estimated it cost $25 million to modernize Florida's voting procedure so that all of the precincts, in effect, would have minimal errors. So it, it costs money. Uh, I'm not sure that even after this debacle that we suffered in, in the year 2000, that there's going to be enough permanent motivation to change the situation. Uh, I would personally, although I don't want to, I'm not asking for a job, I would personally respond favorably if if the Congress or the president or whoever, or both political parties, major parties, would, would establish a Blue Ribbon Commission, and if they ask, for instance, me and Gerald Ford to serve together, uh, and a number of other people whose uh, reputation would not be questioned, and, and recommend changes in the laws that would make uh, it possible to correct some of these problems, I would serve. And your conception is that what we need is a Blue Ribbon Commission not only to evaluate uh, in response, but in fact to organize things so that we've got standardized election procedures throughout the country. Yes, either standardized or election procedures that were equivalent in their margin of error. Yeah. It wouldn't matter if there were two different techniques used in the big United States and different states. If, say, each one of them have a, had an expected error of two-tenths of one percent, but when the poor people have the punch card system with three percent expected error, which are thrown out, and you know that those poor people habitually vote for one party, or usually mm -hmm. do, then that's patently uh, unfair and ought to be corrected. The um, Clinton presidency ends in 10 days. Yes. Uh, yeah. You are, of course, a leading Democrat in the country and, uh, uh, and uh, a former Democratic president. Uh, how, despite that, all in all, how do you, or rather, to make this a little bit more comfortable, how do you think history will evaluate that presidency? I think it's really too early to say, because a hundred years from now, there's no doubt <clears throat> that Clinton will be identified as one of the two presidents ever impeached, if no others are impeached. 
And the fact that he was not removed from office is a very you know, great sustaining factor in his reputation. But I think that his personal foibles are going to be part of history, part of his legacy. Unavoidably so. Unavoidably so. That's, that's patently true. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that he will be identified as a brilliant young man, a Rhodes Scholar, uh, who served well as governor of Arkansas. I think he did some, had some very uh, ambitious and proper motivations. I think the African-American community in, in America would vote almost overwhelmingly that he has done a good job for them, that he has made them feel that they were, had... Uh, as opinions. they did for Vice President Gore. Yes, and uh, as they did when I was in office, too, yeah. as well. And I think Gore's uh, popularity in the black community was, uh, was inherited to a great yeah. degree from what Clinton sure. actually did. Um, as far as international affairs are concerned, I don't recall any momentous achievement that will be historically significant. I may not be doing him justice on that. I don't think there's any doubt that no president has tried more to bring peace to the Middle East than Clinton. He probably put in more days and more hours with him and his Secretary of State than, than I did. And, and I was lucky enough to have a success with the treaty between Israel and Egypt that, uh, that has stood without, uh, without any test. It hadn't been modified at all, but he's really tried. In, on domestic affairs, <clears throat> uh, there's no doubt that during this last eight years, we've had unprecedented uh, prosperity. The stock market has gone up overall, inflation down, unemployment down. But historians know, as I know, that the president in office has very little to do with that, comparatively speaking. The president, I'd say, would have about an equal role with the Congress, who writes the tax laws. But not as much of a role as the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Not as much as the chairman of the Federal Reserve or the chair board in general. And and even all of those combined don't have nearly as much as the, as the general tone and accomplishments of the enormous free enterprise system of this yeah. country, you know, with technological advances and, and so forth and scientific advances. So I would say preeminently the free enterprise system, secondarily the Federal Reserve Board, and then to, to a minor degree, uh, the president and the Congress together. You spoke of his foibles, uh, and of course, in a way, the presidency was suspended for a year and a half it was. while we went through uh, that whole difficult period of the impeachment and the Senate trial. And uh, uh, did that, uh, the man that you succeeded, uh, Gerald Ford, uh, handled himself with honor in a difficult situation, but the man that he succeeded, uh, Nixon, Yes. It is generally acknowledged, weakened the presidency by the Watergate scandal. Yes. Uh, whether that's permanent weakening or not, I don't know how one assesses that. Has Clinton weakened the presidency by... No, uh, I don't think he has weakened the presidency, but I would say that the election campaign finance laws and their abuse have weakened the presidency and the entire political system in this country. Mm -hmm. When I was in office, when Gerald Ford was in office, when Nixon was in office, there was a, a, a surprising comparative harmony between the White House and the Congress, or between Democrats and, and Republicans in Washington. But with the advent of, um, of soft money, so-called, on an almost unrestrained level, which cannot be used to boost a candidate, it's illegal for that, but can be used to tear down an opponent, the, the negative aspect of political campaigning, which unfortunately is very effective, convinces the voters, even subliminally, that 
both sides are probably kind of scoundrels or, or not worthy of, uh, of complete trust. And then that partisanship that evolves because of attacking each other during the campaign period for political survival or success carries over into Washington. So now I think Washington is, is so severely partisan that, uh, that the whole system is weakened. And I would hope that, that out of this uh, past year that some improvements can be made. Do, do, do you see the McCain uh, reforms as, as relevant? or They are relevant. They are a good partial step. Uh, there has been a majority in favor of McCain, fine goal, as you know, for the last couple yeah. of years, but not enough to override a veto. It takes 60 percent, 60 votes in the Senate. If they get that, if, it, if their bill is not weakened too much, either by Republican opposition or by a threat of veto from the White House, then that would be a major step forward. But that needs has to be reduced. And, and that's another facet of American politics that would keep us out of uh, monitoring the election process. Because now, in the last 20 years, there has evolved a system where if you are not able to raise, I would say, $40 million in financial contributions before the primary season starts, yeah. you are not looked upon as your Democratic or Republican uh, party as being worthy of consideration as their nominee. When President-elect Bush asks you, as he may well already have done, but when you get a real chance to sit down with him and uh, answer his questions and have a full conversation, uh, and he seeks your view as to how he ought to comport himself and what he ought to put high on his agenda, what will you tell him? Well, I called him immediately after the Supreme Court made the ruling a couple mm -hmm. of days later <clears throat> and had a very nice conversation with him. And I've talked to Al Gore a few times. We will be going to the inaugural oh, uh, ceremony just to show my support for, for, for George W. Bush. If I had to give him one message, which I probably will if I'm alone with him, it, it would be that despite the altercations and even animosities that have resulted from the 2000 election, and even though Al Gore might turn out to have gotten more votes in Florida and in the rest of the nation than, than uh, George Bush, that he's, the, he's our president. The Supreme Court has ruled, and that is the ultimate uh, stamp of legitimacy. He's my president, and he's the president of all those who didn't support him. And I think that he should remember that in two ways. One is that almost every American who has sound judgment should hope that George W. Bush will be successful as president because it implies the success of our whole nation. And secondly, I hope that in return, George W. would realize that there are certain constituencies that have been alienated in this uh, country and that he should make uh, overt moves, and, and those private too, to reach out to them to let them know that he uh, understands that, uh, that he's their president and, and he's going to make sure that they have confidence and trust that he will treat them fairly. We um, come to a close. I appreciate your spending all this time with us today. Uh, we're going to be playing this uh, conversation directly tonight. It's, it's late afternoon in Chicago at the moment. Uh, the book by Jimmy Carter that we've been drawing from through most of this conversation is eminently readable and I think an important American document. It is titled An Hour Before Daylight, Memories of a Rural Boyhood, published to be sure by Simon & Schuster. Thank you so much for joining I've us. I've really again. enjoyed being with you again.